So we have here, it's really important, again, don't miss this in verse 24, a, a picture of public corporate contending prayer. Verse 24, when they heard about the release, they lifted their voices together to God. Circled that. They lifted their voices together. We see in the Bible, not just here in Acts, but really throughout the Bible, but specifically in the book of Acts, and what we see in church history is that patterns of renewal usually start with, uh, with a crisis, and that crisis gives way to what I'll call a, a holy discontent, a, a sense of discontent. Now, we're all discontent in different ways, but I'm talking about a holy, sacred discontent, a discontent with culture and the status quo and the way that kind of the world is, a discontent with the church and the way that kind of church is operating and functioning in a sub-Christian kind of Christian way. Most importantly, though, probably a holy discontent with ourselves, with a sense that I this, this faith that I have, is, it's anemic. It's not enough to really help me press in to what I want uh, God to do in my life and around me. And so we see that here in this story, right? It starts with a crisis. Peter and John have been arrested for preaching Jesus. Now, don't think about the, the street preachers in the way that you might have encountered a street preacher. Like, I grew up in the South, and we, like, street preachers were kind of like a thing. You'd see these guys with pickets, and they'd be in like purple velour suit, suits, and they'd be screaming about like the end of the world and certain groups of people are going to hell. That's not what's happening here, okay? So don't think like pious Christians standing on a corner just spouting out these holy platitudes. Um, they are preaching the power of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And what they're saying essentially to their, their friends and their neighbors and their family members is that Jesus is the central kind of organizing principle, the goal of all of human history. That true life, authentic life, eternal life can only be found exclusively in Jesus Christ, his life, right? That he came to this earth, that he lived the life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we should have died, that he rose again, right? And that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, all to bring together and to gather for himself a worshiping people who would give glory to his name. That's the dangerous message that they were sharing, and it really ticked people off, right? To, to say, I mean, we think that, like, um, that's a problem now. It was a problem then, too. To say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life was a dangerous declaration. And so they get thrown in prison. They eventually get released. They threaten them. They release them, and they put them back out. But they say, don't do it again, or you're going to be in trouble. And so we find this group kind of under fire in the midst of crisis. And there's this holy discontent that begins to be stirred up in the people, and it leads to prayer. And that's really, and we see throughout the book of Acts, is a series of these crises where the church is being threatened, the church is under opposition, the church is being oppressed, the church is being persecuted. And in the midst of that, God begins to stir up a discontent, a longing for more, right? I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you're just like, you're disillusioned, right? Like you've moved from city to city, you know, you've moved from neighborhood to neighborhood, you've moved in and out of relationship, you've, you've moved colleges and universities, you've moved from one, you know, grad program to another, and you just, you're just like, I, I can't, you know, it's uh, like in the words of those famous, like, musical prophets, I can't seem to find what I'm looking for, right? I can't find satisfaction anywhere. And you just get discontent, and you're like, what's going on? Like, I thought if I just changed cities, if I just changed marriages, if I just changed schools, like, everything would be different, but it's, it's not, and you find yourself in a place of, of discontentment. That's what God begins to do when he works, is he takes us beyond just discontentment and dissatisfaction to holy discontent, 
And then, and then that leads to contending, to struggling. The idea of contending is struggling for something, right? Having a vision for something that you're struggling for. And this is what we see in the book of Acts, that prayer is not just this like throwaway thing that like, it's not like an event that happens. It's not just a one-off thing. Prayer says in Acts chapter 2 that the early church devoted themselves to prayer. It was deliberate. It was intentional. It says they were devoted to the prayers. And they would gather daily, weekly, monthly to pray together. You could say in some ways that prayer was the organizing principle. Public, corporate, communal, contending prayer was the organizing principle of community life. So people did not come to church on Sunday to just talk about uh, flipping houses and real estate transactions and gentrification. Although there's nothing wrong with talking about those things. They, they didn't come just to talk about March Madness, although there's nothing wrong with you know, necessarily talking about that. They didn't come to talk about the newest brunch spot or coffee shop that's popped up in the neighborhood and, oh, have you checked it out and yelped it and you know, commented on it yet? Like, you know, they're not coming to church Instagramming, like, what's going on? This is such a cool church. Look at all the aesthetics. Like, this is amazing. No, they came to church like, oh, man, we went camping and you'll never believe what happened. It was amazing. Super cool. You know, like, what we do here, like, all the time. It's not like how they showed up on Sunday, not how they showed up in missional community. They gathered together and they prayed. They prayed. They contended for something bigger than just the trite, banal superficialities of life in cities. Although there's nothing wrong with those things. It's part of being human. But they wanted more. In the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, occasions of praying together are mentioned explicitly 20 times. 20 times. You're actually hard-pressed to find somebody pray alone in the book of Acts. What you'll see is people gathering together in groups of two or three or 20 or 10,000 to lift up their voices together in contending prayer. Everyone prayed. Look at, these, look at all these examples. I mean, they literally, everybody prayed. Men prayed and women prayed and children prayed. Slaves prayed and slave owners prayed and uh, rich people prayed and poor people prayed and Greeks prayed and Jewish people prayed. Everybody prayed. Everywhere they went, they prayed. They prayed on Sunday in their formal gatherings. They prayed spontaneously out in the community as part of house churches and discipleship groups. And they prayed about everything. I mean, think, look at this. They pray when they select Judas's replacement. They pray at Pentecost. They pray when they, uh, you know, commission pastors and elders. They pray when they send people out on mission. They prayed, you know, uh, uh, with people as they set sail and left the city. Like, their whole life was one of prayer, constant, unceasing, communal, contending prayer. It's weird. Because that's just not how, it's so bizarre because that's not how we live. Right? Like, prayer is something we do usually out of guilt pray this week, dang it. You know, it's just like, well, okay, I have this stupid prayer meeting on Tuesday. If I don't go, it's like my missional community's going. Okay, I'll go. You know, it's like in our marriage, it's like, okay, it's like before bed at night, get the kids in bed. Okay, God bless them, keep them, make your face shine upon them, slam the door, I gotta get out of here. You know, it's just like real life, right? Like it's not something that it's everyone everywhere all the time contending for, for fresh encounter with God. 
Megan Hill has a great book called Praying Together, one of the few books I could find. Um, not surprisingly, two of the great books on praying together are written by two different kinds of minorities, uh, a gender minority, a woman, and an uh, ethnic minority, an African-American guy. Uh, John Amwachekwa has another great book on praying together. Um, and here's what she says about prayer. A Christian never prays alone. Thinking about prayer, we might first call to mind a picture of a lone man on his knees behind closed doors. We might think of him as solitary and his activity as private. But prayer is never solitary. It's communication from one to another. Prayer is an activity of relationship. God and us, God and God, I don't know if you ever thought about that. God prays to himself, Jesus prays to the Father, she prays through the Holy Spirit, the Father, you know, like there's this prayer thing that's going on with God. And then all of us and our God. All of us praying together with God. Why? What's the difference between praying by yourself? What's the big deal between praying by yourself and praying together? What, is, what was so transformational about the church gathering together to pray that it was the primary mode of prayer in the book of Acts, and it was always, always the prerequisite for uh, large-scale renewal. Always step one. A couple things that we see in the book of Acts, and I'll just run through these quickly. First thing is reorientation. What happens when we pray together, when we contend together for God's name, for his glory, for his fame, for his power and his presence, is we get reoriented to reality. We get reoriented to, first, the reality of God. And, and I say that because we tend to forget, right? We get focused on ourselves. And we forget. Like, like, it's a resizing, in a sense. Like, notice the, what happens here. The first thing out of their mouths, they're in the midst of persecution, huddled up in opposition, under oppression. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David said by the Holy Spirit, and then they're going to quote Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 was a, a liturgy for coronation of the kings of ancient Israel. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. As they are being threatened, as they are being shaken, as they're being displaced and disoriented, notice what they do. They stop to relocate themselves in, in relationship to God. They stop to relocate themselves in relationship with God. First, to God and his greatness. And they say sovereign Lord, which is basically a, a title that would have been used for uh, rulers or owners who have absolute unmitigated authority, right? So uh, they're saying, God, you are all powerful. There's not a speck of sand on a beach somewhere that is not under your control. You are the one who has all Power. And we want to make sure that as we look out at these threats and as we feel these, this fear and this anxiety, that we are properly oriented to the bigness and the greatness of who you are and what you're capable of. 
See, what happens in our lives when we, we are facing opposition is that people and things around us get really big and God gets really small. So your boss gets really big. Your coworkers get really big. Your ex-spouse gets really big. Your children get really big. Your neighbors get really big. Those exams get really big. And we start to forget. Ah, there's a sovereign God who's in control of all these things. And what I need to do right now before I do anything else, before I act, is stop and recalibrate my heart to who's really in control, who's really big, who's really powerful, who really has the resources to bring about my flourishing. So they reorient themselves to God, and then they reorient themselves or relocate themselves in the story of God. What what he's basically saying here, what they're saying about quoting Psalm 2 is, this has always been the way that the world works. This is not unique to our cultural moment that people are freaking out and losing their minds. It's always been that way. What he's saying is the nations have always raged against a king. The the, the nations have always raged against people. Human beings have a proclivity to rage against authority, right? To not want a king over them, to not want a God to tell them what to do. When you are proclaiming Jesus as Lord, Jesus as ruler of everything, what you're calling them to do is surrender control. You're calling them to relinquish power. And anytime we call somebody to relinquish power, things get violent. But they're saying, like, it's always been that way. This is what God's always been doing in the world. Always calling out a people for himself. Always upsetting the apple cart in terms of the power structures of the world. So don't freak out. Pay attention to the patterns of God's work in history. You are a part of a great story. The narrative arc of God's work in history is that God always wins. His arm is not too short. He always shows up. He always delivers. I mean, the God is pictured here is in heaven. He's laughing. He's mocking the rulers and the powers and the principalities and the structures saying, that's nothing to me got this. And, and, and they're reinterpreting kind of the opposition they're facing in terms of the opposition that Jesus faced. He's saying, look, even Jesus himself faced opposition. Pontius Pilate and the governing authorities aligned themselves against Jesus. Even his own people, the Jews, aligned themselves against Jesus. Do you think it's going to be any different for you? If you choose to give Jesus your allegiance, your loyalty, it will not make you cooler. It will make you awkward and weird. It will put you at odds with the dominant cultural narratives, right? It will make you upstream, not down. He's saying, don't be surprised. They're saying, don't be surprised. We see ourselves in that stream. And what's cool for us, I think, here is to be able to acknowledge that sometimes we're in these, like, we're in this moment right now where some of us feel oppressed. Some of us feel exhausted, we feel lost, we feel discouraged, right? Because we're going through this kind of cultural trauma and upheaval, and it just, Christians especially are struggling to find their place. They used to be in power, now they're on the fringes, now they're minority, now now that we're kind of getting, you know, harassed a little bit more, And, and Christians are really freaking out, and it's like, what if this moment of great oppression, which by the way has always been the situation that God's people have found themselves in, is not gonna be the death of Christianity, but the renewal of Christianity, 
What if the greatest, the moment of greatest oppression becomes the moment of greatest opportunity? Like, do we even have a category for that? Or, or are we just going to freak out? Or are we just going to assimilate, right, to fit in with the dominant culture? I worry for us sometimes as a church. I worry for me that sometimes we can get so caught up in the cultural moment in which we live. Our field of vision gets so narrowed to what's happening right now. We don't pay attention to what G.K. Chesterton called the democracy of the dead. I mean, like most of you don't even know your grandparents' middle name. You don't know your great-grandparents' first names or last name. You have no idea, and maybe you've gotten a little kit and you've done some research, but like most of us have no idea. Like that, we have, we have amnesia, generational amnesia. And I worry that sometimes we get so caught up where we are that we forget the arc of God's working in the past and how crazy the world has always been. The world is always in rebellion to God. And so the first task of prayer is to relocate ourselves in that story. God, you are sovereign. You are powerful. You are mighty to save. They've always been against Jesus. They're going to be against us. So what does it look like to be a renewing presence in the midst of crazy? It's helpful to name our moment, right? It's helpful to understand trends, to listen to podcasts, and to understand the things that are happening to us. But transformation happens when we put our moment in the context of God's larger and broader and historic presence and activity throughout human history. It's one of the downsides. uh, There's a lot of people have kind of written and discussed the transition from, I'll go back to something I said earlier, from paper maps to uh, digital kind of GPS locators and smartphones. One of the things you lose is that when you had to go, like I remember going on a trip. So my my father-in-law is an Eagle Scout um, and he loves maps, okay? He's one of those weird people that loves maps. And so we go to Destin every year as a family and we travel down there. He loved nothing more than to go to AAA to get his big trip tick that, you know, again, it's like, it's as long as this stage, you roll it out in the car, you're like, you know, wrecking, trying to figure out where, but, but one of the beautiful things about a map like that is when you unfold the map, you have to orient yourself to a larger reality, to a topography and a geography that doesn't start with where you're at. And so I got to figure out, okay, we're in Op Alabama, which I would not encourage any of you to go through, but Op Alabama and i got to figure out, is this north, is this south? i got to turn the map just right. And, and so my father-in-law, even after smartphones, like 10 years ago, we were on a trip down there, and we kind of got off track because he would map everything out, and we pulled off to the side of the road. My brother-in-law and I were like, we're like texting, like going, we know where to go. Like clearly Waze is telling us it's this way, right? Like, and we are paying attention. And, um, and so he's like, no, 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 like this is the way to go. we got to go this way. And so we're like, you know, none of us are going to challenge his authority for sure. And so we just kind of follow along. Turns out he was wrong. I mean, he was devastated, right? Like, it, it, it didn't work out like he thought it was going to work out. He, never, he has never led a trip since. Like, the next year he was like, you guys just lead. It's okay. Like, his life was, like, over. Like, we had to use GPS. And, like, Nathan, my brother and I are now leading the trip. And we're just like, what do we do? He's so depressed. And, like, it's really been hard for him. And you think about GPS, it's exactly the opposite. When you open up your GPS app, you see that blue dot. What's weird about that is, for the first time in human history, the map is now oriented to you. You don't have to be oriented to the map. And everything is defined in proximity to you. That's kind of how we approach prayer sometimes, isn't it? 
not me aligning myself with God and orienting myself to him. It's God, can you get in line with my program? God, I need this. God, I want this. God, we're feeling this. There's all this anxiety. God, what do we do? And God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm the blinking blue dot. You orient yourself to me. That will put everything else in proper perspective. And that's what happens when we come together as a community, that we learn together. And man, I would say like our church being on the younger end of the spectrum, we need to get around older saints. We need to get around older brothers and sisters who've been around the block, who've seen a few things. And though they may speak a different language, they may use different cultural reference points, they've seen God act. They've seen God show up in ways that we have not. And when we get around them, they're going, you ever notice that? Like just older people who've been around Christ for a long time, they're just like, dude, it's going to be okay. Just calm down. Just quit being a dummy, you know, just like, or they don't say anything. They just look at you, and they're just like, you can feel the kind of like judgment, like being scorned, like heaped on you, just in that silent moment. But it's a kindness, because they know it's going to be okay. Reorientation. And, And as we get reoriented to God, we also begin to experience a resonance with one another, a resonance with one another. Our hearts are getting tuned to the same frequency. We're getting on the same wavelength together. Notice again, there's, there's this naming in verse 29. They say, God, look upon these threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. There's an acknowledgement that, yeah, we're under these threats. There's a lot to be afraid of. Notice like there's no like bunker mentality here. They're not like grabbing shotguns, going underground, buying some piece of parcel of land out in the desert out west and like just waiting for the barbecue to happen, right? Like they are staying together, engaged, naming, like, yes, God, I see this threat. God, will you take into account, will you see this threat? Do you see this threat? So there's, there's this kind of uniting around and sharing of, uh, through vulnerability, their fears, but there's also a pressing into, a retuning to the frequency of God's heart, God's desires, God's passion, God's reality. God's spirit, God's glory. The, the picture I get sometimes of us as a church and, and my experience in the church, I didn't grow up in church and I became a Christian as a, as a teenager and have had three different church experiences since then. And, and it feels sometimes kind of like, uh, again, I don't know why I'm harping on technology today, but it kind of feels like the transition from like the Walkman. So like I'm a guy that grew up with Walkmans. And if you don't remember that, they're these big bulky CD players that you like yellow and you carry them around your hip and they'd have these big goofy headphones, um, to like earbuds, and like now everybody, I mean, you, did, you, you, you weren't super cool walking around with a Walkman, but like everybody now has earbuds, right? Everybody has AirPods, and so like pretty much all of us are walking into coffee shops, walking into the office, biking, you know, uh, earpods in, ear, earbuds in, and, and it's like we're all kind of tuned in to our own reality, Right? We're all like, I don't know about you, I often put earbuds in even when I'm not playing music so people will think that I'm unavailable and inaccessible, right? Like, dirty little secret, like I just put them in because I'm please don't talk to me. I, I'm kind of more of an introvert the older that I get. Uh, but, but we're all kind of, we have these soundtracks, right, that are playing. Our, our experiences, we're, we're tuned to our emotions, we're tuned to our relationships. And so we all show up in church. We show up in missional community as a bunch of individuals, metaphorically speaking, with our earbuds in, all attuned to what's happening in our own lives. And a lot of that noise is anxious and fearful and very like just the sense of being out of control and confused. 
And what corporate prayer does, what contending prayer does, is it asks us to take out the earbuds and to be face-to-face with one another and to truly listen for the Spirit of God in one another. It calls us to listen to each other's experiences. Some of those we'll be able to empathize with because there are experiences. Like I'll never forget when we miscarried our first child. And some friends just came over to our house, and we were just devastated and falling apart. And they said, hey, you know what? We've been through this too. Can we just pray with you guys? They sat in our living room, and they wept with us, and they prayed with us with only the words that somebody who's been through a miscarriage knows how to say. And there was this deep knitting of our hearts together in the midst of our pain. So sometimes it's coming alongside somebody else who's experiencing what you've experienced, and we lift our hearts together, and God builds a bond between us that's spiritual and unbreakable. And maybe sometimes we can't empathize, and that's a good thing too, because sometimes we need to hear from people who've experienced things that we haven't experienced. And so maybe we come together with brothers and sisters of another race or another class or another socioeconomic status or another neighborhood, and we begin to hear things that we don't even have a category for, what it's like to be oppressed, what it's like to be abused. And we've not experienced that. Guess what? It's still good for you to hear that, because that better be on our prayer list. If we really care about diversity and inclusion as a church, it doesn't just change our dinner tables. It ought to change our prayer meetings. It ought to change our prayer lists. Do we even have names? Do we have needs? Do we know the pain of our brothers and sisters who are dealing with things, not only here, but around the world that we can't even imagine? That's part of our calling, is to carry those burdens together in prayer and to contend with God and struggle with God on behalf of one another so that God would tune our hearts to the same frequency. Resilience, right? One of the most amazing, third thing, resilience, one of the most amazing things you in this prayer is not what's prayed for, it's what's not prayed for. Like if this is me and my back's against the wall, I am praying, like, smite my enemies with the fire of Elijah. Like, call down fire and, like, remove these people. They don't do that. There's no raging. There's no retreat here. Like, God, we just want to huddle up and, like, this is a big, scary world and we don't know what to do. There's no retreat. Notice what they pray for. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. And while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Man, do we pray like this as a church? I don't pray like this. God, what I need more than anything is boldness to speak about Jesus. I like doing good things in Jesus' name. I don't like to speak about Jesus. It makes things weird. I'm a pastor. I'm already weird, but I still don't like to do it. You don't like to do it, like in your workplace. Are you praying those prayers? God, give me boldness to speak about Jesus, to offer to pray for somebody in the name of Jesus, to grab drinks with somebody after work and talk to them about Jesus, to talk to my dad about Jesus who abused me, who still needs Jesus. Again, the reason I think they prayed this way is because they were in crisis. Crisis brings a lot of clarity. 
You know, the, the truth is, we also are in a crisis. And maybe the reason we don't pray is because we don't see how dangerous and insidious the crisis we're in is. It's not like this. We're not being persecuted. Matter of fact, I would argue it's a much worse crisis than they found themselves in. Our crisis is indifference. Our crisis is apathy. Our crisis is anxiety and isolation and just straight up, we don't care. And nobody else cares either. All, all our city wants to talk about is like brunch and like bougie life. Right? Like, I mean, it's so trite. Nobody cares. We're starting to care a little bit. We're starting to wake up a little bit. Like injustice is becoming a thing again. But we don't care. Prosperity like mutes the crisis and all of this consumerism, right? And it's just like we have so much of that. It's not just out there. It's in the church. Like we show up to church and we're like, I want this and I want that. And we have all these opinions, right? And it's like I want to be identified with the church and we want the image of the church. But there's no skin in the game for us. We don't want to commit to anything, And so, like, I'll do it as long as it works for me, but if I get a better option or another call or a wedding, like, I'm out. And I'm certainly not going to show up to pray. What we need more than anything else, I think, in this moment of doubt and cynicism and polarization and violence is not better coffee. It's not a digital platform so we can better brand Soma. Now, we can get better. I, I acknowledge we're like the lowest tech church in the city, okay? I get that. But we don't need better Sunday production fundamentally. We don't need better ministry programming. What we need is boldness to speak the name of Jesus that only comes as we're filled with the Spirit and we're contending together in prayer. Do I need to say that again? Does anybody else believe that? Yeah? Okay, thank you. We need boldness. We need courage. And that's what happens. We're galvanized as we come together and we're formed and shaped by regular prayer. We lock arms together and we say, we are needy, right? Because there's none of us that doesn't need boldness, right? We lock arms. I am needy. I am, I've been humbled. I am dependent. And I want to be expectant for God to move in my neighborhood, in my workplace, with my children, with my family, with my enemies, with my coworkers, and in this city, I want to contend on behalf of God in the city. And then the last thing we see is renewal. We see a renewal breakout. God unleashes his spirit, and when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together shook, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And we see later in the chapter that they move out and they become a force of generosity. There is a deep unity that begins to pervade them, so much so that there is not one financially needy person in their community. And then we see signs and wonders throughout the book of Acts coming from these prayers. When things shake in the Bible, it is a sign of the presence and power of God. The weightiness of God's glory comes in, and just like you stepping out on a thin sheet of ice, it will buckle under the pressure. Shakes. God comes into this world with his glory, and things shake, things tremble, people change, and there is renewal. They're filled with the Spirit, which is basically just a fresh relational experience of God's grace. You know, like sometimes God doesn't feel real, even though you believe in God. This is like all of a sudden God becomes real, tangible, 
Like I experience his love in a fresh way. Like I know he exists and I want to be with him. And I want to do things in his name and I'm not afraid. The idea of renewal, the old, old people call it revival. It's not something you put out, like I was laughing, I was Googling revival, and it's like there's all these revivals going on around Indianapolis, like 10 people showing up on some random patch of land in the city. It's like, that's not a revival. Revival is something God does. We pray, but God does it. But it's when the normal operations of the Holy Spirit get intensified and accelerated, and the unity and the grace and the justice this experience among, amongst God's people begin to spill out into the neighborhood, and society itself is changed. It's happened in New York City. Uh, it's happened in uh, the Midwest. It's happened in, uh, in, in Korea, and some people argue it's still happening. You know, the largest churches in the world are in Korea, 700,000 people at one church. What would happen, friends, if we contended together as missional communities and discipleship groups on Sunday morning for one another, for renewal? We say to God, do it again, right? Like there's nothing in the book of Acts that indicates that that was meant to be contained in that period of time. There are miracles and supernatural works that God, people have prayed for that God has not yet in his sovereignty deemed to unleash. We have the privilege of joining with them to ask God to say, do it again. So what I want to do is we close our time, because we don't want this just to be an idea. We want to practice this together, right? This is the stuff that I think our culture is longing for and that I think we are longing for. Like if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you long to experience God in this way to move beyond the platitudes, to move beyond the bumper stickers, to move beyond the programs and say, God, I want to experience you. I want my friends to experience you. I want to be changed by you, and I want to see that change roll out into my neighborhood, into my city, and into the world. We've lost a pattern of contending prayer. We don't do it. I bet not many of you in this room have ever been to a real prayer meeting. When I first became a Christian in an old Baptist church in Kentucky, one of the very first things they make you do is go to prayer meeting. And I, had to get, I got up Thursday morning at 6 a.m. for a couple years with a group of men to pray for an hour, which was like punishment at the time. But as I look back, realize one of the most informative experiences of my life. Where is that today? We as a church gather to pray, and, and we're getting better at it. We have pre-service prayer at 845. I think three people show up on, uh, to pray for our day every week. I don't say the guilt trip anymore. It's just we need to grow here. We have um, monthly prayer, right, that we, we have actually have one Tuesday. I didn't plan this and synchronize with that, but we have one on Tuesday night here. We're going to gather together to pray and to worship and to seek God's face. I would love to see more people show up there. I think it's one of the acid tests of our maturity as a church is how many of us really value prayer and are willing to put our stake in the ground and show up. And I know it's like, oh, we don't have childcare. Okay, we parents get childcare for everything we think is important. So let's, let's make it a priority, and let's do our best to get there if we can. Like, don't worry about FOMO. Like, your friends that go out, they're going to get drinks again on Wednesday and Thursday, and they're going to go camping another week, okay? But like, what if we just showed up and believed that God did something in prayer? We do that on a monthly basis. We pray for renewal here every week in this service. And I, I long for that to be a day that's not just all of us passively, silently watching the prayer and just going, oh, that's interesting. You know, they're praying for something. 
We actually are like, amen, yeah, yeah, I want to see that. Let's go. God, do that again. So let's just pray. I'm going to lead us through this passage as we close our service out here, as we, as we move towards closing. And I want us just to take some time together. Now, I realize some of you are not Christians, and that's okay. We're glad that you're here. Some of you, um, this is awkward and uncomfortable, and so you're just going to pray silently. That's fine, okay? Nobody's going to come around and make you do anything. I just simply want to invite you and invite us to pray out loud together if you, so feel, if you feel comfortable and so moved. To pray publicly, to lift our voices together, to just work through this prayer for a few minutes and ask God to bring his renewing presence among us. I'll lead us through, and then I'll close this at the end with the Lord's Prayer. And so if you feel comfortable, go ahead and just start speaking out your prayer. And it doesn't have to be one person. It can be multiple people just agreeing with one another, praying out loud, asking God. If you have your spouse, go ahead and do it with them. If you have your missional community or discipleship, go ahead and grab them. If you need to relocate and get near people that you want to pray with, do it, okay? But let's just make sure we're praying in the name of the Father to Jesus in the power of the Spirit, okay? Any other prayers, we will stop. But other than that, that's the only prerequisite. We're going to reorient ourselves to God, okay? And we're going to retune ourselves to one another, and we're going to pray for renewal. So we're going to start here with uh, reorientation. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let's take some time to just give thanks to God that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe to cry out and praise him, right? Thank, it could be as simple as, thank you, Lord, that you are in control. Thank you, Lord, that you, please don't drone on and on. Like, just make it simple, short praise. And let's do that together for just a few minutes, okay? Go.
Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Let's pray in the spirit of resonance together for the unity of our church. Let's pray for boldness to speak the name of Jesus to our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors, to ourselves, to our families. And let's pray for the continued maturity and mission of the church to go forward and that we would be dialed into the pains and the joys of those that are around us. Let's lift these requests up together um, with one voice. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray for renewal. Personally, that we would be shaken, that God would wake us up to his glory and his goodness, and he would give us a fresh encounter today with his love and his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his truth that the Holy Spirit would then be released and poured out socially among us, that healing and salvation and revival would come first to this church, to all the churches in our city, and then culturally that God would then use that to bring greater transformation, to bring generosity and justice and unity to our city and beyond to the world. So let's take a few moments, let's, let's lift up our cries for renewal.
take about 30 more seconds. Let's lift up our voices together at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, some of you have that memorized, some of you don't, but I'm assuming you grew up in the Midwest. So uh, if not, it's in Matthew 6 uh, there. And uh, we're going debts. <laughs> our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.